This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show. And it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Give Me Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it. I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those, uh, all those things, but that will be the one song, hands down, that, that will that will identify me, and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing yeah. in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did, it, it had no intention of being any of that. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and, and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And 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 then they told me they were going to put it as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that that I was lucky enough to, to, to strike a chord with people that, that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing um, healing process for her when she lost her brother. Sure. I feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to have gotten to write that one. And we're all blessed and lucky he did. And you know, it was interesting as we were listening to that clip, Greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to this song. In fact, he listens to it every week, he told us. And then in the end, it inspires him as it relates to how to live. There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain. Son, when your work on earth is done, go to heaven a-shoutin'. Love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, Let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know your life 
peace the devil We're no stranger to the rain So go rest high on that mountain The sun you work on earth is done Go to Gathered round your grave to breathe Wish I could see angels' faces When they hear your sweet voice And you're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gil's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song. Our American Stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver, 
As he was dying of cancer, it was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world as I knew it ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day. If I was just willing to look hard enough, I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, Many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, 
and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa and I slept on the floor next to him. At the ready, if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily, even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed IVs dripped, test results waited for. 
Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had, and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything on this show. One of them, by the way, is the arts. We love telling stories of songs, great books, 1776 by David McCullough. We've done it. 
uh, the stories of Aretha Franklin's music, the stories of the Doors music, the stories behind so many great songs. Well, I came across a book that tried to solve a riddle that's been on my mind most of my life. What makes something last, art, past a year, five years? Why are we still listening to Merle Haggard's music or Pink Floyd's music or Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare? Why? And were those writers, when they were writing it, thinking about creating art that lasts or just getting out there and making a hit? Well, it turns out that there's a man who's tried to answer that question in a book. Ryan Holiday is a writer and media strategist who has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Tony Robbins. We asked him to share some stories from his book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Here's Ryan explaining where the book's title came from. In the late 1930s, there was a British literary critic named Cyril Connolly, and he had never really been successful himself as a writer. Uh, he desperately wanted to. He knew many successful writers. He'd actually gone to school with George Orwell. And so he, he wrote this book as a book of literary criticism. And, and basically his premise is, how many of the books that my friends are writing, that I am trying to write, that any writer is publishing, how, how many of them will be around in 10 years? He felt like 10 years was the mark of literary greatness. In the industry, we, we call any book that lasts for more than a year or two, we call them perennial, right? A book that's lasted for 10 years would be a, a very big success. But the irony is if you pull up uh, the New York Times bestseller list and you go to the, the fine print at the bottom, it says among the categories not actively tracked at this time are perennial sellers. So there's this term, we know there are these books that, that last and last, and yet most of our focus in the industry, whether we're making books or music or movies, is about new things. It was in 2015, actually, for the first time in the, the music business that catalog albums officially outsold new releases. And so we know that the things that were made a long time ago, if you think of many of your favorite books and movies and television shows and restaurants, many of them are not brand new. It's, it's actually the ones that have really stood the test of time that we return to over and over again. And yet it it's strange where most of the energy in these industries go. And so what's so fascinating about Cyril Connolly's sort of journey is he's writing about this, but then can he actually do it? Right. You know, he's writing a book about creating lasting, enduring work. Well, I was fascinated by the idea of like, could could he actually do it? Was he sort of like a, a literary Babe Ruth? Could he hit the ball where he set out to to hit it, where he pointed and told the crowd or the pitcher that he was going to hit it? And the book, it, it, it never became a sort of a massive cultural trendy sensation, but it did endure. You know, it, it was published in 1937 and it endured through a world war, through political revolutions, through fads divorces, new fashion styles, massive technological disruption, and so many other things. It, it, it was given a second edition 10 years later, so 1947 or 1948, it was republished. And then in 2008, it was published in a third edition. And it's still reading today. And, and here I am talking to, to you guys about it. And so it's a book that's outlived him and almost everything else published at that time. It's earned the author a cult-like following among fellow writers and creatives. And I think what's so impressive is that he 
set out to achieve this thing and he and he did it he has another quip he said you know i'd like my my work to outlive a dog or a cat and it is interesting how how many books and projects that creatives kill themselves to make and how ephemeral most of them are james salter is one of my favorite novelists i was, was reading one of his books not long ago and on the back, which wouldn't, it wouldn't have been written by him, but it, it described his novels as having a sort of imperishable freshness. And I, I just love that idea. I, I love the idea of making something perennial, something imperishable, something that stands the test of time. And by my goodness, when we're watching Shawshank Redemption on TV or The Godfather for 90th time, we know we're watching perennials, right? And they give us more satisfaction than so much of the new stuff that we know is going to be old stuff really fast. Here's Ryan sharing some stories from his own background that prompted him to create books and other work that stands the test of time. I've always had this lifelong fascination with things that were old. When I was a teenager, everything I liked was old. My favorite bands had released their albums decades before I was born. Um, they were still going strong by the time I came around. I, I remember picking up The Great Gatsby in high school and thinking how incredible it is that this book that was written to be a critique of the jazz age, right? It was a timely periodical, could have endured and, and somehow been so so timeless and, and true e even to a, a random high schooler in California, you know, 60 plus years later. And my first job as a writer. I was a research assistant to an author named Robert Greene who wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. This was a book that didn't hit the bestseller list until a decade after it had come out. And, and yet, quietly and slowly, it sold more than a million copies and been translated into dozens of languages. I, I would guess that in a, a hundred years from now, people would still be reading it. Um, another book that I worked on, you know, got a $7,500 advance, which is this tiny advance. It's what they call a kiss-off advance in the industry, meaning that it's the, the lowest amount of money they can give you without hurting your feelings, and they, they hope you'll go away. And that book went on to sell over a million and a half copies. And, and, you know, now, 10 years after its release, it sells about 300 copies a week. And I, I went on as a marketer. I became the director of marketing in American Apparel. And it was interesting at the, this company, which sold hundreds of millions of garments, every year the best-selling items were the items created at the beginning of the company's trajectory. It was, and they had this mission of making, making things that would be sold in vintage shops in the future. And I, I just love this idea of making things that can last. With with my own books, you know, perhaps the readers haven't haven't heard of me, or they certainly wouldn't have seen me on the New York Times bestseller list uh, for the most part. And yet, quietly and, and like clockwork, they sell about 5,000 copies across the various titles every single week. And the marketing for them has long since finished. And yet, you know, surprise, uh, one of my books did appear on a bestseller list last week a year after it had come out. And so it's this idea of making things that resonate with people that really solve some problem for them. You know, the the best book to have written as a creative would have been what to expect when you're expecting because every day in every part of the world, 
uh, a couple gets pregnant and they don't know what to do. And so I'm I'm fascinated by that kind of work, the 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 work that endures, and it it saddens me that so much work that is made doesn't endure. And so I was fascinated by this question of sort of what similarities do these works have in common? And I, I set out, I, I interviewed uh, all sorts of of authors and editors and producers and. Uh, marketers and entrepreneurs and and I tried to get to the bottom of what makes things last and I you know I found a few things I think first is that work needs to be unique if it, it's very hard for it to endure if it is not definitive if it if, if it doesn't stand out stand alone and yet on the other hand it should do a very simple job I think one of one of my editors said to me one time she said Ryan it's not what a book is it's what a book does. And by that she meant it has to do something for the reader. It's not necessarily about what it does for the creator. It's about what it does. So what to expect when you're expecting it, it helps you with this difficult time in your life. And and I think that's what the best the best work does. You know, it's this this question, this is a blank that does blank for blank. If you can't fill those in as a creator, you're gonna have a lot of trouble. I, I was interested in the test that Max Martin, one of the greatest songwriters, certainly the most prolific and popular songwriters of all time, it's written for everyone from Celine Dion to the Backstreet Boys to Bon Jovi to Taylor Swift. And he subjects his music to what he calls the car test. He gets in his car in Los Angeles, you know, he puts the top down, he puts it on the stereo and he drives up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Is the music adding to that experience that the idea that even music is designed to really do something for the audience is something I think that people miss. And and so that that's an essential part of this sort of creative process. And when we come back more from Ryan Holiday on his book, Perennial Seller, and my goodness, what a fascinating question. What makes things last? Not just art products, heck, maybe even a marriage. More after these messages. continue with our conversation with Ryan Holiday, his book, Perennial Seller. And here's Ryan telling the story of how stumbling onto a band influenced the rest of his life and the rest of his career. In 2001, I, I would have been maybe 14 years old, and I was trying to illegally download a Metallica song on the pirating site Audio Galaxy, and I accidentally downloaded a song by the band Iron Maiden. I, I don't remember what Metallica song I was trying to download, but the one that I did get is etched in my memory. It was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I couldn't have known that as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old that that seven-minute song, I think it's about a condemned man's last night on earth, that this song would take me on this strange journey that I'd see the band many times over the next 17 years, over many different presidents, that that even contained within that song would be lessons that I would, would help me make a living as a writer. But 
a few weeks ago, I was in San Antonio and I saw Iron Maiden play a sold out show. It would have been, you know, 20,000 people in the audience. And next to the same friend that I'd remember telling on Instant Messenger about this band that I'd just heard of. And in front of us was this four decade old heavy metal band from East London that since 1975 had produced 16 studio albums you know, a dozen live albums, two dozen world tours, literally thousands of concerts in 60 countries. They'd sold close to 100 million albums. They'd hit number one five different times, 15 million social media followers, 250 million streams on Spotify, which is more than Prince or Madonna. This is a band that hasn't been on the radio since, well, really ever. And what Iron Maiden is and what they inspired in me and why I think they're a lesson to most creatives is that they are perennial in the sense that they have an audience that they own, that they perform exclusively for, right? So most bands are trying to put out a single to be on television, to be on the radio, to get new fans. And, and Iron Maiden has said, that their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, he, he said, you know, we're like farmers. We have our field and we're tilling that field. We don't really care what's going on on these other fields. There's supposedly a story between the lead singer of Iron Maiden and the manager of Iron Maiden and at an industry event. And some young agent came up to him and said, look, I, you know, I admire, he said this to Iron Maiden's manager. He said, I admire what you do. It's just incredible, uh, the success that you've had. And, and the manager said to him, you probably think that I'm in the music business. And the guy said, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm not in the music business. He said, I'm in the Iron Maiden business. And, and what he meant is that he didn't care about trends or fads or what everyone else is doing. He didn't care about other acts, even in their niche. He only cared about this one band and about making something that's true for those fans and, and something that, that, that they cared about. And so as a writer, I've always, I've always taken a great lesson from that. How, how, do you, how do you not care what's going on around you and only care what those true fans want and need? And how do you make something special that goes to some core part of the the human experience for them and make it so good that they want to invite other people to join that exclusive sort of community or cult or club with you? And and so what I was trying to write in Perennial Cellar is sort of a recipe for how to do that, you know, how to how to develop that thing you know Stefan's wig would say and, and obviously he lived many years before Iron Maiden he he would say that the most valuable thing for an artist to achieve is a faithful following a reliable group of readers who looked forward to every book and bought it who trusted me and whose trust I must not disappoint and I think that's wonderful advice whether you're you know a baker or a mechanic or a best-selling author or a multi-platinum musician is how do you achieve that following and and build that platform that that's that's what the book is ultimately about and here's ryan on the relationship between creative artists and marketing i talk to many creatives and writers and entrepreneurs and i, I tend to find that they follow a an arc 
where they they throw themselves into making whatever it is that they're making and it takes everything they have and they get there they limp across this finish line and they think they're done and sadly that's not true i liken creativity to being a marathon that you finish and when you walk across the finish line instead of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and putting a medal around your neck they they grab you by the hand and pull you to the starting line of a next marathon where you have to run again and that second marathon is is marketing how do you get attention for that work if you if you can't find an audience then so much of that work was likely in vain there was an interview a few years ago with the novelist Ian McEwen, and he was saying what a pain it was to market his books. He said, I feel like a wretched employee of my former self, my former self being the happily engaged novelist who now sends me a kind of salesman out on the road to hawk this book. He got all the fun writing it, and I'm the poor bastard who has to sell it. But making art for a living is a privilege and one of the obligations of that privilege is thus the selling uh, there's a line from peter Thiel, the founder of paypal he said if you don't see any salespeople in your organization then you're the salesperson who's going to pitch your work if not you right who's going to sell this thing if you're not interested in selling it and so that's what i end up telling a lot of creatives there's no magical firm that you can hire there's no magical button you can press there's no magical media outlet even being on this wonderful show isn't going to guarantee that my book perennial seller is going to find all the people who are interested in finding it and so if you're not going to do it who will peter drucker the management expert he said that each project needs someone who says i'm going to make this succeed and then goes to work and does it that that has to be you. So I push creatives to think of marketing not even as an obligation, but as a essential part of the creative process. Can you be as creative in your media appearances, in your marketing, in your ways of getting customers as you were in writing every page or, you know, developing the uh, the vintage of wine that you're you're selling or the the boots that you wanted to produce, right? How can that be as much of a of a canvas to paint on to make something special as as the thing you you made itself? And a lot of creatives fail at this. I mean, the 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 shelves groan with unwatched movies and unread books. And, you know, our phones are filled with downloaded music and podcasts that we'll never get around to seeing. And so that urgency, that sense of I've got to make people care about this is really the essential task of the writer or the creative of any kind you know if you build it they will not come that is not how it works you have to make them you have to invite them one by one until the crowd is full until the the, the seats are filled and that's why you did this work in the first place right certainly no one slaves away on some creative or artistic project purely for their own satisfaction uh, otherwise why would they have ever released it in the first place and so that idea of of taking ownership of of it is the difference i think between something that sells five copies and something that sells five million copies and i think every artist would rather whether they admit it or not reach five million people than five
And there you have it, Ryan Holiday, his new book, Perennial Seller, and essentially answering the question, what makes things last? From products to art, frankly, to a marriage or anything else you care about in your life. And by the way, I love the line, it's not important what a book is about. It's it's important what a book does to the reader. And hopefully we're doing good things for you, the listeners. Ryan Holiday's story, Perennial Seller, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything. And periodically, we tell stories about sports. But as you've come to know, they're not just sports stories, any more than those great stories on ESPN, those 30 for 30 stories, or sports stories. We're going to spend an hour talking about Coach Dean Smith of the University of North Carolina. He passed in 2015, but we are here to remind people of the virtues of this man and stories about this man. If you aren't a coach, you'll still want to listen. If you run a business, if you run a family, if you have any influence at all in your life with other people, you're going to want to learn from the very best about how to lead. And that's what Dean Smith was. He was a leader, he was a teacher, and of course, he was a coach. His basketball bloodlines ran as deep as the Carolina blue sky. His coach at the University of Kansas, Fog Allen, learned the game from the man who invented it and after whom basketball's Hall of Fame is named, James Naismith. Winning was also in Dean Smith's bloodline. Under Coach Allen, he was a backup guard on the Kansas team that won the 1952 NCAA title, and he was runner-up the following year. He scored only one point in those two championship games, but it was from the bench sitting near his coach that a sports giant was birthed. He would go on to mentor two of the next generation's great coaches, fellow Hall of Famers Larry Brown and Roy Williams. Great coaching apples, it turns out. Don't fall far from great coaching trees. Dean Smith was born in Emporia, Kansas in 1931. His dad was a teacher and a high school basketball coach. His mom was a teacher too, but it was from his dad that he learned the value of every human being and their potential. Kansas was a highly segregated state at the time, but that didn't stop his dad from putting a black player, Paul Terry, on his team. In the 1933-34 state tournament, Terry was banned from playing by state officials. Rather than hamper that team's performance, it spurred them on. They ended up winning the state title. When Smith was 15, his family moved to Topeka, where he played basketball, football, and baseball in high school and earned an academic scholarship to the University of Kansas. He would go on to coach briefly at Kansas and at the Air Force. And then came the big shot at North Carolina, He was replacing the legendary Frank McGuire, who had led a team to a 32-0 season and an NCAA championship not long before. Things didn't go very well the first year. Here's one of his players on one of the early teams, legendary NBA player and great college player, Billy Cunningham. To say it was difficult times for him is an understatement. He was being hung in effigy. The coaches, everyone was questioning his coaching ability, what he was doing. Alumni, students, 
wasn't very many good things. Matter of fact, I found something from the old Daily Tar Heel of January 13, 1965, and I just took a little portion of it out. It's a quote. Yeah, I know Dean has a big job to do, and if he can't keep up with the traditions of the fine Carolina teams, he should start looking for, a smaller, for smaller shoes to fill. And the bottom says, name withheld. I hope he's here tonight. <laughs> and those were tough years for Coach. And Billy Cunningham continues on Dean Smith's early years. You know, they say you learn more from losing than winning. Well, we made sure he got enough of that. And, and uh, one of the things, though, we taught him is humility, number one. How could you be a cocky, wise guy coaching teams that were 8-9, and 12-12, and 12, you know, didn't make it through the ACC tournament, didn't do, really didn't do very much of anything. So humility, we got that covered for him. <laughs> Loyalty. It was only the players in his immediate family that would talk to him. I mean, no one had anything to coach Smith. They were, all they wanted to do was get someone new in. You know, coaching and recruiting, which it come down to, and you saw that there, is that he learned that either he changed the style and started coaching in the proper way and went out and got some decent players because he surely was tired of watching us. And then that's when things started, and obviously he went on to become, if not the greatest, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And by the way, Billy Cunningham was speaking before he sold out Dean Smith Center at the University of North Carolina. This was just days after he died. All the players came back, all the people who knew him, and all the kids. The place was just packed. And we're bringing you parts of these speeches to celebrate this great man's life. Up next was retired president of Converse Sneakers, Mickey Bell, who happened to be graduating, who happened to be a graduate of the class in 1975, and who said Dean would have hated all of this attention. As I look out over this huge crowd, I can't help but think how Coach Smith would absolutely hate this. As you know, he did not like to be center of attention. He did not want to um, um, be in the spotlight. He was a very humble man, and he would never accept or really understand why people came from all over the country and all over the state to be here to honor him. Yet if anybody deserved a celebration, it was Coach Smith. And Mickey Bell then asked the question rhetorically to the crowd, why me? Why am I speaking? When Coach Williams called me last week he and asked, said that he and the family wanted me to speak, I had the same thought that you did when you saw the list of speakers today. Why Mickey Bell? <laughs> For you see, I was not an All-American. I didn't play in the NBA. My jersey is up there, my number, up in the rafters, but some guy named O'Corn came up and put his name on it. <laughs> Besides, when you look at the other speakers here today, they're all legends. Antoine Jameson, Phil Ford, Eric Montross. I said, Coach, didn't you want another star to speak here today? And Roy reminded me that Coach Smith gave equal equal treatment to every player, from a walk-on to a superstar. Yes, said, yes, Roy said, all the speakers achieve great basketball uh, uh, accomplishments. But everyone thought it'd be great to have someone on the other end of the spectrum 
to make a presentation. So I said to Roy, let me get this straight. What you really are saying, you want a player to speak that had limited talent, limited scoring ability, was slow, couldn't really jump, played a little, and contributed some. Is that right? And Roy said, yes. And I said, well, I'm your man. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Mickey Bell, from Phil Ford, from so many of his great players, and the aforementioned Roy Williams, you're hearing his name a lot. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life of Dean Smith here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the life of Dean Smith. We're celebrating his life, and we're hearing from so many of the people who knew him, from great players to not-so-great players, as you're about to hear from Mickey Bell, who continues to talk about all the debts of gratitude he owed this great coach. Besides, how could I say no? Coach Smith never said no to any of requests I ever made from him. Well, I'll take that back. When I was a senior... I went up to Coach Smith and I said, Coach, when we go in the four corners, do you think I should be the one in the middle of the four corners handling the ball instead of Phil Ford? (laughs) And I remember his answer. He just said, no. (laughs) Like you over last week, I have been reading and listening to all the tributes to Coach Smith. They've made me smile. They've made me reflect. And yes, that made me cry. But I'm so pleased that through these tributes, Coach Smith is now understood by everyone around the world of how great he was. Over the years, my friends who never met Coach sometimes would come up to me and say, Mickey, was he that good? What was so special about him? And that really is an impossible thing to answer completely. For how do I explain that yes, he was a great coach, but he was even a better person. How do I explain to someone that life, his life was guided by principles and he never ever wavered from them? Yes, we all have things we believe in, but how many of you can say that you never waver from them? How do you explain to someone how he made all that played for him a man? Someone who challenged us every day, to get better on the court and off the court. He coached you to be a better basketball player for four years. He coached you to be a man for a lifetime. How do I explain to someone all the life lessons he taught us while we were here? Lessons like the power of his positive words. He was the most positive man I ever met. He was always encouraging you. Now, he could get mad, Uh, I think all the players here knew that when that whistle blew hard, he clapped his hands together and said, get on the line, we'll get something accomplished today. We were in trouble. But he was always positive. It was always when we make the free throw, not if we make the free throw. When we steal the ball versus if we steal the ball. The glass to Coach Smith was always half full. How do I explain to someone that everything he did was with dignity and class. He never talked about winning. 
only improving. He never embarrassed a player. He was both a humbled winner and a gracious loser. He never uttered a single cuss word while I was at Carolina. And believe me, my play deserved a couple of cuss words. <laughs> How about explaining to someone the lesson of loyalty? You saw that every year during senior day. No matter the opponent, no matter how highly ranked they were, or no matter how important the game was, the seniors were going to start. His principle of loyalty far exceeded his goal of winning. How do I explain to someone the lesson that little things do matter? Did you fully touch the line in sprints? Did you help your teammate up once he dove on the floor? Are you on time? I look at every player right here that played for him. They're all nodding their heads because we knew that on time the Coach Smith meant five minutes early. And his lesson there was that there was no shortcuts in the game, just like there's no shortcuts in life. He always said little things equate to huge success. How do I explain the lessons of preparation leads to calmness? Duke game down eight, 17 seconds. All these stories you've heard were true. I was in the huddle. I'm leaning over his left shoulder. He says, we're in great shape. <laughs> we got them right where we want them. <laughs> Isn't this fun? Because you see, we had prepared or practiced so much for late game situations. He was totally calm and positive. His calmness against adversity is something I try to do even today. How do I explain the life lessons that family and friends are the most important? There's a special bond among all the Carolina basketball family. We might be generations apart, yet we know we were part of something very special, and we have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. Other, sc other schools have tried to emulate what Coach Smith created, but there is only one Carolina. <clears throat> when my son was born, I received a handwritten note congratulating me on the birth of my son, Michael. Now, I'd been out of school for many, many years. I didn't call him. I didn't tell him the name of my son. Yet he took the time out to write me a note congratulating me on his birth. And when I marveled at this later when I saw him, his response was, Mickey, that's what friends do. Wow. It is well documented how Coach Smith's innovations impacted the game of basketball. The four corners, secondary break, have all been adopted by coaches both here and abroad. One of his innovations transcended basketball. It's now seen in all team sports. That, that innovation is pointing at your teammate after a great play. You saw it on a key play in the recent Super Bowl. Tom Brady throws a pass to the receiver, the receiver jumps up, points back at Brady, and Brady points back at him. It was Coach Smith's way of thanking the player that had just made the pass. Because to Coach Smith, it was all about team and teammate. Just think, that simple gesture epitomized what Coach Smith was all about. If he was here today, as Billy said, he would really not like this uh, praise on him. He would be up here pointing at people. He would say, thank you, players. He would say, thank you, Coach Guthridge. He would say, thank you, students. He would say, thank you, Roy Williams. And I think all of us 
should thank Roy Williams for keeping the values that Coach Smith created ongoing here in Chapel Hill. And that point to a pastor was the biggest deal. No one had ever seen it before. Guys pointing at each other and giving each other credit immediately and spontaneously on a court. People copied the North Carolina way, but it was the North Carolina way. Mickey Bell went on to thank his coach in these final words. For 40 years, every time I saw a coach, he would always say, thank you. And I'm not sure what he thought me, was thanking me for, but today I want to thank him. I want to thank him for giving a guy with limited t talent, remember the guy that couldn't jump, couldn't shoot, couldn't run, a chance to be part of the basketball family. Thank you, coach, thank you. And in closing, if your friends, if your friends come up to you, if your children, or even if your grandchildren come up and ever ask you, what was Coach Smith like? Simply reply, he was the best. Thank you. And then came up Phil Ford, one of the greatest point guards in college history, ended up coaching at North Carolina, and he started things off with a funny story. It must have been my second or third game, my first year as an assistant coach here back on the staff. And the first two games, I didn't say anything. You know, I was really nervous. I was in awe, you know. But this particular game, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach this game. I'm going to help out. So, you know, J.R. was playing. And we'd come down court. We'd change sides of the court with the ball like we were taught to do, make three or four passes, throw it into J.R. J.R. would kick it out. He'd get a little deeper. We'd kick it back into him. He'd miss a one-foot jump hook. The other team would come down the court, make one pass, guy shoot a three-point shot, and we got a hand in the face, and it went in. So this happened three or four times down the court, and I said, I'm going to coach a little bit right now. I say, hey, coach, you think we ought to call a timeout? He looks at me with a straight face and says, what are we going to tell them? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're getting the shots we want to get. They're taking the shots we want them to take. That was my first lesson in coaching right there, I'm telling you. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of these talks. And wait till you hear Roy Williams. It's just worth, it's, it's worth the wait, folks. And by the way, Phil Ford, when he was recruited by Dean Smith, said this in an article right after his death. My mom when she first met him, thought he was the dean of the school. That's the way Mr. Smith carried himself, like the dean of an academic program, and that more than 95% of his players graduated is a record that would make any college dean proud. When we come back, more on the life of Coach Dean Smith, his story, his players' stories, North Carolina's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Coach Dean Smith. And you're going to be hearing more from Phil Ford, other players, and of course, Coach Roy Williams. What a speech he gives. It's worth the wait. And all of this happened at the Dean Dome, as it's affectionately called, on the bucolic, beautiful campus at the University of North Carolina, where Coach Smith taught young men how to be grown men for decades. Phil Ford, by the way, before we go to another clip and his talk, He said this about Coach Smith. He was about the only coach who told me I was not going to start. But my mom sat me down and explained to me that when I was a senior, I could then be assured that Coach Smith wouldn't be promising another high school All-America my starting spot when he was a freshman. And I would never have thought about it that way. Right there and then, Coach Smith was teaching me how to be a man and how to think like one. Back to Phil Ford's speech. And he starts to get emotional right about here. Because of my Christian belief, I I do believe that Coach is in a better place right now, uh, especially seeing how he was the last couple years. But the human side of me, you know, I still want to go by his office. I would go by his home with Mrs. Smith and and his office with Brent and Miss Woods, and they would make him smile and you know, I, I still want to have lunch with him, and I still want to push him out to his van, but uh, I do know one day that I'll see him, and I'm really going to miss him. And if there's a model of how we should live our lives, I mean, we need no, look no further than coach's life because I'm honored, I'm truly honored to have been, to have played for and been an assistant coach to the greatest coach ever. Not basketball, the greatest coach. I'm going to miss you, coach. And next up, and by the way, you're seeing every race and ethnicity, every speech style, every religious type. Up comes this gigantic, tall, skinny, white kid, seven feet tall, outstanding UNC player, Eric Montross. And these are the words that came to his mind about coach. Humility. Conviction, dedication, compassion, loyalty, bravery, and love are a few words which I now know describe Coach Smith. But in 1988, I knew Coach Smith only as a winning coach. When my high school basketball coach said to me, would you be interested in hearing from the University of North Carolina and Dean Smith, my answer was yes. Later that summer, I pulled my truck to a stop in front of the open doors of our gymnasium, and one of my teammates ran out of the gym into the parking lot, and he said, you'll never believe who's here to watch you play in a pickup game. It's Dean Smith and he's sitting in a rickety old plastic chair in the back corner. You see, even in Indiana, a state with their own legendary coach and Bob Knight, Coach Smith evoked emotion and respect. My father remembers early in my recruitment wanting to learn more about Coach Smith, so he and I began to read the book, The Carolina Corporation. It was then that we began to see a sketch 
of what would later become a deep understanding of Carolina basketball under head coach Dean Smith. In the fall of 1992, I sat with my Tar Heel teammates, many of whom are here today, in the locker room just back here. And we were setting goals for the upcoming season. We came to an agreement at the end of that meeting that our goal would be to end the season in New Orleans. The next day in our locker, and you guys remember this, was an 8 by 10 picture taped in the corner of our mirrors where it stayed all season long. The image in that picture was of the scoreboard inside the New Orleans Superdome. And it said, the University of North Carolina, 1993 national champions. The famed poet Robert Frost said, the afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Upon Coach Smith's passing, ESPN's Marty Smith used that quote to describe Coach Smith as the afternoon. And so many others, including his opposing coaches, the morning. Coach Smith has had a profound effect on our lives. For many of us and for many of you, the first thing we think of is a magical comeback, a championship, or a victory over a rival. But more impressive than those on-court achievements is the indelible mark he has left upon society. As a respected leader in the community, he stood tall for what he knew was right and garnered respect because of it. He's long been lauded for his efforts, but was shy to receive this attention because to him, it seemed like the only morally correct stance to take. And however great his passion was towards the game that he loved, it was displayed tenfold to us as his players. He brought the fight for desegregation to college sports and used the game of basketball as a vehicle to carry the message, a faith-based message of humanity onto a national stage. Coach Smith delivered this message publicly, but his message was not for show. He administered it to us as players as well. He mandated that unless he had a letter from our parents excusing us that we be in a place of worship once a week. He encouraged us to find something we were passionate about outside of the game of basketball and to share the same dedication we had for our sport with that cause. There was a recognition that basketball was not what should wholly define our lives. And for many of us, that way of thinking has been embraced. Dr. Martin Luther King said, Jr. said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Among many of the off-court experiences designed to give us a broader sense of appreciation for the opportunities we had was a trip to Butner Prison, where we practiced in front of some of the most forgotten individuals in our society. 
Numerous trips to children's hospitals also brought us face to face with the very spirit that made our sport so popular and increased our awareness that the world was not made up entirely of individuals as fortunate as we were. A familiar thought for the day used by Coach Smith is the serenity prayer from theologian and fellow Medal of Freedom winner Reinhold Niebuhr. It reads, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Leaders are unique in how they convey their beliefs. Coach Smith, he led with courage and wisdom and by example, giving all of us the opportunity to focus the lens through which we looked at life. You're not going to hear many NBA and college athletes sound like that, folks, and that's coming straight from a father figure and coach named Dean Smith. And when we come back, we're going to hear from Coach Roy Williams. And by the way, Smith won the Medal of Freedom in 2013, and not many coaches win that kind of an award. The man who brought up so many young men and turned them into men, the legend, the coach, the man, Dean Smith's story, the rest of the story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final segment in this hour-long celebration of one of the great men, one of the great coaches, one of the great teachers in American life. And we love to celebrate teachers, and the best coaches are just that. Listen to our Bear Bryant Hour, our Vince Lombardi Hour. They're startling. And what you can learn as a parent, as a teacher, as a coach, as a school leader, as a church leader, well, it's all there, folks. Listen to the way these young men talk. 30, 40 years after playing for them, it's as if it was yesterday. And they still maintain relationships. By the way, Michael Jordan said this, Other than my parents, no one had a bigger influence on my life than him. He was more than a coach. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was my second father. And by the way, this man racked up 879 wins, a 776 winning percentage, 17 ACC championships. And boy, that's tough. That is the tough basketball conference. And of course, two national championships. But here's why he's really remembered. It ain't the wins, folks. And now, the man who played as a JV player for Coach Smith went to Kansas, then came back to North Carolina, current coach Roy Williams. If you ever hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Dean said this, you know it's a lie. Because <laughs> I've never referred to him anything other than Coach Smith. If you hear anybody say that Roy Williams said Bill Guthridge, that Bill did this, that's a lie too because he's always been Coach Guthridge. And Coach Smith used to say, he'd call and he'd say, Coach Williams, Dean Smith. I said, Coach, how you doing? <laughs> right. 
we're partners playing some good golf matches, and I'd always call him coach, and he'd say, you can call me Dean. I said, no, sir, I can't, and I never have. No, sir, I can't. Here's Roy Williams talking about something that startled him as a young player, and it had to do with where Coach Smith took his players to practice. I even dreamed of Coach Smith last night. Gospel truth. I hope I never hit another golf ball if that's a lie. So Coach knows I'm telling the truth. But some of the things about Coach Smith and one thing I thought of when it was said something about Coach taking him to Butner and practicing. It's one of the times I disagreed with Coach Smith. He took one of the teams when I was here to the state prison, maximum security prison. Everybody there had at least two life sentences. And they closed that door, that gate, and it is a scary feeling. And we're in there and we're doing a little clinic and everybody's having a good time. And Coach says, well, let's scrimmage those guys. Okay. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, Coach, you referee. Now, there's some players here that remember that. I said, Coach, you think I'm calling a foul on one of those guys? You are crazy. <laughs> and that was the truth. I didn't call a single foul. And not a lot of coaches are taking their boys to prisons to scrimmage, folks. Dean was always teaching. Roy Williams says here, with Dean Smith, with Coach Smith, the players were always first. The other thing I remembered last night about Coach Smith is he always wanted to make sure that you guys knew you were first, more important than anybody else. And I've tried to do that for 27 years as a head coach. One day, I was talking to a player, and I have a rule when a player's in the office, nobody interrupts. And if somebody calls, I don't take the call. And Jennifer Holbrook, who's sitting over here, was my secretary at that time. I've got a player in the office, and she opened the door and stuck her head in, and I looked, and I said, what? Because you just don't do that. And she said, former President Bush is on the phone. <laughs> I said, would you please tell him we'll call him back? True story. So when the player and myself, when we were finished and the player left, I walked out and I said, was that really President Bush or somebody like Mickey Bell? You know. <laughs> and she said, no, the Secret Service called first. And I said, we'll see if you can get him on the line. And so she got him on the line and I talked to him and he wanted to see if he could get two tickets to the next game. Swear to goodness. So two or three years ago, the Final Four was in Houston, and they honored President Bush. And Jimmy Nance was the MC, and Jimmy got up and told that story about Coach Roy Williams wouldn't even take his call. <laughs> and President Bush got up and said, the conversation I had with Coach Williams was fantastic because he said his players were more important than anybody. And that came from Coach Smith. And here's Roy Williams talking about the encouraging ethos that Smith drove 
at North Carolina. I would like to encourage all of you to tell people what they mean to you. At the private service with the family and the letterman, I told them a story that I had never told Coach Smith that I loved him. And I've regretted that. And I've told my players, encourage them to tell people that mean really mean something to you, tell them how much they mean to you. Coach Smith knew what he meant to me. I tried to give him a great deal of credit because I told the truth. Everything that I did, I got from him. Now, yesterday, I didn't guard the four corners quite as well as he would have wanted me to. And I look out, and I think Coach Larry Brown, who was one of the first guys to run the four corners, up here is Phil Ford, the best ever, Kenny Smith, Dick Grubar. I tried to give him credit every time I did anything, but I never really told him what he meant. So my players are sitting back there at the back, and they know this is the truth. We should all spend time telling people what they truly mean to us. I had a coach one time that said, if you coach a guy 30 years later, and I'm from the South, so a guy means go boy or girl, either one, so it makes no difference. But if you coach someone that 30 years later, you can still see something that you gave him and to really make sure it's something positive. Every day our lives will show something that Coach Smith gave us. The way we treat people, the way we treat people with respect and dignity, and the way we care, because that's what Coach Smith did. And here's Roy Williams closing things out. We're very fortunate to be here together in a wonderful, wonderful family. The Smith family, I thank you. We love you. Trying to speak on behalf of every one of us. Everybody has negatives. Everybody has pluses. Coach Smith had more pluses than anybody I've ever known. Let's raise our hand and point and thank him for the assist. Thank you. And again, we're at the Dean Dome. We're taking you there. And this was last year, but we'll play this every year because great teaching is great teaching and it's eternal. These themes last forever. Up last, to close out the ceremonies, Dean Smith's pastor, who he was very close to, and that's Reverend Robert Seymour. And he closed out everything with these words. What a wonderful tribute to have this huge crowd here today to honor his memory. But Dean was an extraordinarily humble man. He was known for his humility and giving other people the thanks and attention. And if he could have anticipated this gathering today, I think there's a good chance he might have said, don't do it. 
But this gathering was not for Dean. This gathering was for us. And it's so true. And by the way, the Reverend then went on to read a little poem that was absolutely beautiful. And I wanted to share one last story that I know about Dean Smith. And it came from a conversation I'd had with a friend. It turns out a country club had been courting Coach Smith. And Coach Smith was very close to John Thompson, who happened to be black. This was in the 1980s. And Dean Smith had a question for that country club. Can I bring Coach Thompson? And they said, well, no. African-Americans aren't allowed to play at this club. And he goes, then with all due respect, I ain't about to join. And he said, and that was the nature and character of Dean Smith. And this was the premier club where all the connected folks were, all the donors were. And he was teaching then, not too long after that club desegregated. His word got out that Dean wasn't going to play there. Always leading, always teaching, trying always to do the right thing. Not a perfect man, no one is. But my goodness, Dean Smith's life, celebrated at the Dean Dome, we'll do it every year here. His story, all of his boys' story, in a sense, Chapel Hill's story while he was there, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.